have spent our life on adventure, entrepreneurial initiatives, and we find ourselves here in the States. We've been here 22 years, but I thought it would be great for her, my wonderful wife, and uh, she's been a partner in ministry. She's a marriage and family therapist as well, and I thought it would be great to say hi. <laughs> you said it all. <laughs> Ventura, you are beautiful. I, um, we, we stayed over last night, and um, I didn't realize we'd be right so close to the ocean, and I had to borrow a pair of sneakers from Sherry because I realized, gosh, I could actually have a beach walk. And I went out this morning and had an hour walk, and Ventura, you are beautiful. It was spectacular. I took a little video for my son because there were all the surfers and uh, what are those stand-up paddle boards out there and gosh this is a very beautiful city I want to come back because I want this man to walk that promenade with me but he was busy praying so I was out walking and praying which was a, a lot of fun but we are so excited to be here thank you for having us we met a few of you last night and we fell in love with the ones we met we know some of you and um, just uh, adore Bert and Sherry really do and commend them. We know we've been where they are decades ago, literally 30 years ago. We were church planters in a little beach city in South Africa, Durban. And uh, it was, you know, we were young and ignorant, and it really helps. <laughs> because I think they're a lot wiser than we are. We, 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 were. we, we, we were. We were. We're were really just, wise now. No, we we. We're on our way, but we were really ignorant, and I think ignorance helps because you've got to be pretty tough, you know, tough-skinned, and you've got to just get out there and do it. So I think this is so wonderful for us. We have longed to get here, and finally today we're here. So thank you for having us. Thanks, my love. Right, put on your seatbelts, uh, both by accent and by style. We're going to fly through some scriptures today. You good with that? You good with that? All right. If you don't understand my accent, then there will be a special corner for uh, introverts after the gathering. I just said to Sherry, I think it would be fabulous to have like an introverts corner when you have your conversations. And then there will also be a cultural translated corner for those of you who don't get the South African thing. But it really is, you know what amazes me? Ventura is curious. From Orange County, Ventura represents Patagonia and surf. But we came in yesterday afternoon, we met a church planning couple from Santa Barbara for a couple of hours, and the more I looked around and watched and listened, the more curious I became by the Ventura story. There's layers to the story. I'm a history grad, so my mind goes to, okay, what happened here? What's, what's going down? What's, what's in the city? Why has time stood still for just a little bit? You have a very curious, curious story. So it's our privilege to be here. Grab your Bibles, please. I've been given a text. I've been given a topic, and I'm going to do it differently. How does that sound? <laughs> Ephesians, please. Now, those of you who may be a little less acquainted with the text, go to the middle, turn right, keep turning, until you find a delightful letter which Paul, who was an entrepreneur, an author, uh, he made uh, tents, he was a preacher teacher, and ultimately died in prison. But he wrote to a church he loved very dearly in Ephesus, and uh, chapter 4 is where we are going. So it's about, if you look at my Bible, it's about 85% to the right. I therefore, he writes, 
a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, if this is complicated for you, chill, it's no big deal. We're going to tell some stories in just a little bit. Um, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. That's a generic thing, ladies. That's not male. It's mankind. He gave gifts to mankind. In saying He ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. That's kind of complicated poetic language. It basically meant God came and dwelt amongst us. That's what it means. God descended. God left the privilege of his throne next to the Father at the throne of grace. He came and dwelt amongst us, came and lived amongst us, submitted himself to a teenage single mom, and he became her child. Great disrespect in the then known world. It was a, it was a, it was a social cultural crisis, and God chose to submit himself to a single mom whose then fiancé, Joseph, embraced Jesus after some initial resistance. He was very happy to just break off the engagement and say, you know what, this isn't working. And I love that part of the story because everything in Jesus' life includes someone. So no matter what you've done, where you've been, there is something in the great Jesus narrative. You say, Chris, I'm struggling with my singleness. Yeah, I don't understand. Meryl and I have been together 41 years, but Jesus does. See, he was always single. And uh, he was tempted in every way just like us. So there was the cute little Mary who walked past and rolled her eyes at him, and he understood temptation, but was without sin. Everything we face, there is, he was a carpenter. He worked with his dad. He was an apprentice. He worked with his hands. He was in the family business. They cut down trees. They shaped the trees. They made furniture, possibly, possibly even helped in building homes. Uh, the, the Catholic social anthropologist Jose Pogado says that it was more than just building tables and chairs. It was a far more complex skill set that he had. Back to the text. He who descended, so God came and dwelt amongst us, also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all, until, until we all. These gifts are there until, until we all attain the unity of the faith, and I'm sure you agree we haven't, until we all attain the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or personhood, which we haven't, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, vulnerable, uncertain, insecure. You know what kids are like. I mean, we've got three kids. Two, our two daughters are married. Our eldest daughter and her husband live in Australia. They've planted a church there. They've got four kids, and my daughter at 32 has gone to nursing school. She so loved the pregnancy experience and giving birth. She's smaller than Meryl, and she just squeezed them little suckers out. And she said, I want to help others enjoy the experience. So she's gone to nursing school. Amazing. 
And then my second daughter and her husband, he's from London. They live in Costa Mesa. And then we have a son who surfs and goes to college when the waves are bad. Um, <laughs> but you see here, pardon my love? Not true. Not true. All right, that's why he's in San Diego. Um, until we all attain, what am I saying? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry until we all attain to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to the mature uh, manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. Children are vulnerable. The one minute they're crying, the next minute they're laughing. The one minute they want an ice cream, the next minute the whole world hates them. Jesus says, uh, Paul says, I don't want you to be just like that. Tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, to human cunning, by the craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, with every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Father, help us now. We love Your Scriptures. We love Your Scriptures. We so many layers to understanding and revelation. And I ask today in the little time we have that there'd be life, God life for every one of us, God life for every family here, God life for Anthem Ventura. Let the lights come on. Let the, let the, let, let the bulbs flash because someone has flicked the switch of divine understanding. Grant us the mystery of revelation in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I turned 60 in July. Now, I have to tell you, I loved every major birthday, whether it was 18 or 21 or 30 or 40 or 50. Somehow, 60 just sounded like a lot of numbers. I just, I just suddenly woke up, and my brother, who's a school teacher in South Africa, he said, you know, we all have to retire at 63. I said, why? 63 is so young. I've told Meryl there was an article in the paper I read yesterday. I read international papers online. And there was a woman, gorgeous woman, who just turned 60, and there was a picture of her mother when she turned 60, and one was a seriously old auntie, and here was this gorgeous woman who may have looked 45. And it's curious, but I honestly wrestled with it. And so I thought, okay, Chris, you're acting like an absolute wuss. What do you do when you wrestle with something? So I said, all right, Lord, I'm going to read every 60th chapter that I can find in the Bible, every 60th verse I can find in the Bible, and anywhere where 60 appears in the Bible. Is that a good deal? Okay, so this is what grabbed my attention. Isaiah 60. And reads, I'll read the beginning, the end, and then a, a particular verse on the inside. Uh, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the people, but the Lord will rise upon you, Anthem Ventura, and the glory shall be seen upon you. And then the end of it says this, your people shall be righteous, they shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting. I think the NIV says we're a planting of the Lord, the works of my hands that I might be glorified, at least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, in its time I will hasten it. Now that ministered to me more than you can imagine. But there is a particular verse that I want to reference, and it was verse 13. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine. Three different kinds of trees. Or the juniper, the fir, and the pine. 
to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. Now you're saying, Chris, what does that have to do with us? We, like you, are planting a little church. A year ago, five of us sat at my house. Meryl was in South Africa, her mom's 80th birthday, and uh, my son was working at Seed, which is kind of a Patagonia adventure-type store, and two couples came around, and we had steaks, we had salad, we had some wine, and that was the night I decided, yeah, we'll do this. Here's the point. It's a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. Church planting is a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. God revels in small communities that are being planted together for the display of His glory. There is something curious about a kingdom community that comes together. John, the great apostle who, died, who lived the longest than everyone, and I'm sure if John walked in here as, a, as an old, grotchety old man who walked in here, and, and I would have lent and said, you are the last one who knew Jesus. What was it like? Tell me. Tell me. And then he says two things about God. He said, God is love, God is light. And I think a broken world like Ventura, like Costa Mesa, is a world that dearly needs the God of love and the God of light. Where there's darkness, let the light shine. Where there is brokenness, let that sense of wholeness come into it, that sense of love come into it. But this is the point I want to make. Christianity is a team sport. Do you know, until about 100 years ago, Christianity was spoken more of as us, we, ours, rather than I, me, mine. And in the last hundred years or so, the language, even if you take a, a, an analysis of the books written, most of Christianity was written about we, us, ours. But in the last hundred years, certainly the last 80, it's my spirituality, my walk with Jesus, my, 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 I, I, I. Is it a surprise that Christians have as many divorces as non-Christians? Well, it's no surprise, because everything we do is I, 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 me, my, rather than Christianity being a team sport. And here's the mystery, right there in that little verse, where it says this, the cypress or the juniper, the plane, which is a fir tree, and the pine will beautify the place of my sanctuary. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not an ecological specialist, but I'm told that those trees do not naturally grow together. In, in Isaiah 41... Forgive me for just nerding out on you for just a moment, but John Mark's my friend, so I have to like nerd every now and again. But, but, but it says this in um, Isaiah 41. He says exactly the same thing, if I can find it here quickly. I, I will make the wilderness a pool of water, the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive, I will set the desert, the cypress, the plain, or the pine, that they may see and know and may consider and understand together the hand of the Lord has done this. These trees do not grow together. God creates jungles in deserts. He takes trees that are not supposed to coexist. Look around you. Would you naturally choose every person in this room as your best mate? Probably not. Because you may be a juniper and someone's a pine. You may be a cypress and someone is a fir. But God in His mystery and His beauty puts together all of these different kinds of trees into a jungle in the desert. And that's the only way they can coexist. I went to the desert 1986 in, in Israel in a, to a kibbutz. And I remember driving in the bus. In the, it was just sand. 
And we came around this massive dune, and as we came around the corner, there was green. I mean, I literally was startled. It was about noon. Uh, the sun was beating down in the desert. It was incredibly hot. And suddenly we came to this kibbutz. Citrus fruit like this. Honestly, I'd never seen before. I saw a man working a rose bush, and he washed the soil seven times. And in faltering English, I said, help me understand, why are you doing this? And he said, in order for the rose to grow, we need to wash the soil seven times. You see, ladies and gentlemen, God specializes in making jungles in desert places. So when I see Ventura and you're curious to me as a city, as an historian and a thinker and a cultural kind of curator, I am so intrigued. But this I know, that in a spiritually desert place, God makes jungles. God takes different trees that should not coexist. You wouldn't necessarily have everyone in this room around your dining room table naturally. But God says, this is exactly what I want. I want the world to say, what on earth holds those people together? What, what is it? What, what, what is it? But when it's the me, I, mine, then I hear continuously, you know, Chris, I don't need church. Really? So God makes a jungle except for you. So you become the single tree in the desert by yourself. This I promise you. You will die. Or use the, another analogy, which is the church as a body. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it curiously beautiful that God, God created exquisitely? I, I, I would love to have seen God's process of creating a body. Wouldn't you? Just slowly but systematically putting us together. Cell by cell, limb by limb, bone by bone, sinew by sinew, ligament by ligament, flesh by flesh, skin by skin. And then whoosh, the Ruach, the life of God. And people say, oh, Chris, I, I, don't, I don't need a body. Can you imagine, forgive me for being really horrible and yucky and alien-like, but could you imagine if right now a tongue floated in here, bleeding, dripping, so, hi, hi yeah, I'm a tongue. So, so where's your body? I don't need a body. I, I'm a tongue, and I really dig existing all by myself. How many of you know, before long, the tongue will be shriveled up in the corner with no life? Imagine if an arm, zombie style, comes floating through the door. Hi, how are you? My name's Sherry. I'm the most amazing smiler in the church. How are you? Uh, where's your body? No, I don't do body. It's just me and Jesus. I don't need a church. I will just be an arm. Bleeding. Dripping. Pouring. Dying. God is so clever. God is so clever. He creates a narrative where we gloriously need each other. I know that's foreign. You know, coming from Africa, where we, Africa's a continent of conflict. There's a civil war everywhere. Somewhere, someone's hating someone and killing people. And I don't say that humorously. I mean, I was an officer in the South African infantry. I had to be. We were always at war with someone. And so you know you cannot survive by yourself. You cannot be a little island plugged away with your own flag and your own concrete wall. You need your neighbor. You need the person across the way looking out for you. Neighborhood isn't a place where you drive in, the garage door closes behind you, and you don't talk to anyone around you because you need each other. Are you with me, dear friends? And God created a church with all the wonderful metaphors, none more so than a jungle in the wilderness 
a body joined together. I was reading in my devotions recently um, about Ezekiel. Remember, for those of you who read the Scriptures, where God takes Ezekiel to this barren valley, and there's all these dry bones. And then He asks him, He says, can these bones live? Ventura, can all these stumbling, stuttering Christians who are nowhere with Jesus, can they live? And the prophet answers wisely, and he says, only you know. It's like the ultimate cop at ah, you know. And then he says, speak to these bones. Oh, I think uh, no movie maker could have made a moment as profound as you stood there, and these sun-bleached bones begin to move. I mean, it is zombieville extraordinary, and they start connecting. And then there's ligaments and sinews and flesh and skin. And then there's these bodies lying there, but no life in them. And then God says to the prophet, speak over them. The ruach, the, the, the spirit, the life of God. And the prophet speaks, and suddenly it says a vast, mighty army stood to its feet. Glorious picture of God life. Please don't try to walk this Christian walk alone. Many years ago, we were. I was 24. Meryl was 21 when we planted our first church. We were ignorant. I was a school teacher. Meryl was at college. We just said, let's plant a church. How hard can that be? The assumption was, it's really easy. Not. But we did it for 14, 13 years. We loved it. It grew to 1,000. We planted churches out. It was fun. It was exciting. There were artists and sculptors and painters and songwriters and musicians and opera people and professional surfers. There was, it was this incredibly fun filled community. But we realized you cannot walk your spirituality out alone. It is an American lie. Nowhere else in the world, and I travel all the time, I'm off to Dubai now in a few weeks' time, nowhere else in the world is Christianity presented as a singular faith. It's just me and Jesus. Nowhere else in the world. In Europe, they're little pockets of believers. They know each other. If you get a church of a hundred in France, you are a superstar. Those Christians know they cannot exist alone. The moment they step out of their home into their world, it's an atheistically driven secular society that wants to munch them up. Why am I speaking like this today? I don't know. I could be really wrong, really missing it, and you're all like totally yawning your way through. When does this guy finish? Is it a southern hemisphere hour? Or maybe... There is something sublime about God taking a random, disconnected group of people and making you a jungle that changes the ecology, the local microclimatology of an area because you are God-loving, Jesus-kindled, Scripture-empowered men and women who will not walk it alone. Are you with me? Okay. So, into all of that, please remember Christianity is a team sport. It's what we do together. We need each other. During those early years when we planted, I mean, one of the things I heard my mouth say was that honesty and vulnerability is the road to holiness. Two weekends ago, we took our son down to Point Loma. He was a sophomore. He did his first year at Vanguard, and it was brutal for us. Many reasons, one of them being for 32 years we've had a kid at home. But our eldest daughter got married at 18. It's kind of a family thing. Grandmothers got married at 18, mother got married at 18, so daughter got married at 18. So when my second daughter turned 19, she shrieked with joy, I've been set free, I've been set free. <laughs> so I was standing in the kitchen one day early, I wake up early, 
And uh, the Spirit of God says to me, it's time for your boy to fly. Now, we love him. He's a surfer. He's got long hair. I just absolutely love him. And uh, I knew. Meryl came down the stairs a few hours later. I said, babe, T's got to go. And she looked at me. She said, I know. And I just felt this sob from within me. It was just because, because I'd waited. I was 40 when he was born. He really was a child of promise for me. And um, so on the Friday morning, we were about to go to Point Loma. With three of us were sitting there. I'd gave given him a few things of mine representing his now leaving home, go and do it, boy. And uh, I'm saying all of this because I hope this story will help you. Friday we go, stay overnight Saturday in San Diego. Saturday night we come back. Sunday night is our little community. Mama Bear is limping. She knows it's right. She knows it's good. She knows it's proper. So she arrives at our, we eat together. That's how we do community life. So the first hour is around tables eating food together. Not potluck. We set a culinary theme. Tonight is Chinese. And all we're going around the world. Next Sunday is Indian. And so we just go around. And then we eat together for the first hour. It's our soft welcome. Because we want to draw people who've fallen out of love with the church. That, that's, that's who we want to reach. So Meryl parks her car a ways away. She puts her makeup on. She gears herself. Puts on her game face. All right, now... Got to be strong. And she, yeah, she says, I'm not going to cry. And she walks in, and there's Sam, one of our beautiful young girls, walks up to Meryl, puts her arms out, and gives Meryl a gift. Well, that dissolves Meryl. See? And it's like God says to her, No, you won't put on a brave face here. You'll be honest and vulnerable and real. I hope you picked that up on the, on the thing. I won't let you, basically, is what God says, put on a brave face. You're going to be honest. You're going to be really going to be transparent. So I preach. When I'm finished, I think the meeting's done. We've had some conversations. We've told some stories. We've had a good time. Meryl says, babe, can I just say something? Now, Meryl is Sherry's friend. They like introverts. You know what I mean? So if she comes up here, it's a pretty cool, brave moment. So I'm thinking, wow, Meryl wants to say something. And so she tells the story. I put my game face on. I put the face on that I think people wanted to see I didn't want to be vulnerable. I didn't want to be honest. I didn't want to tell the church, actually, I'm hurting. But God wouldn't let me. See, guys and girls, this is the safe place. This is. This is the place where the world, where we can really peep into each other's souls with great sacred gentleness and love each other and hold each other. I hate the notion that any of you came here this morning, had your prospect coffee, and uh, you know that you think, okay, now gear yourself up, you know, put on your game face, okay, let's worship now. No, 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 there's, a, there's just a place of honesty. I really, really am not doing well. Can someone worship around me? Can someone lift up my arm? Can someone pray my prayer because I have nothing in the tank, it's empty? That's Christianity, a, a team sport, where we are there for each other and we walk in the context of Toronto. There's so much. I mean, you, you know what the number one gift is? Uh, two years ago, the number one gift for a high school graduate, a girl, a daughter, in Orange County. I'll give it to you again. The number one gift to a girl graduating from high school in Orange County was breast augmentation. No, they got a car at 16. Breast augmentation. What are the parents telling their kids? I will teach you from young how to present yourself to the world. Never let them know. Never let them in. Never be honest. 
Just present the image you want. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what's the greatest prophetic alternative? And I'm not against if you want to have that surgery. That's not the point. The point is one of honesty and transparency. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing. This is where my life is right now. It sucks. Oh, it's amazing. I hate my husband. Oh, I think my wife is delicious. It, 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 it doesn't matter. We walk honestly with each other. Are you with me? And creating an alternative community in this space is exquisite. Now, can I say this too? I'm a father more than anything. I love that. I love, love, love being a dad. I know for some of you that's brutally scary. But I want to ask you not to give up and not to give in. I want to ask you, it's worth testing the waters, even if it's just a little at a time. You say, well, Chris, I opened my heart up before to someone, somewhere, a church community, and they butchered me. I am so sorry. I deal with that all the time. Meryl's a therapist. She deals with that all the time. I get it. But it's still worth going for it. It's still worth trying it. Honestly, honestly, honestly. When I sat before the Lord and He said, I want you to establish a new community, I said, Lord, okay, but on some conditions. And one of the conditions is Meryl and I can walk honestly and true. So if Meryl and I have a fight on the way to the church, that's the first thing I tell them. Hey, guys, heads up. Meryl and I fought before we came here. He's like, yay, we did too, you know. It's like, okay, now, now, now we're on the same page. Now can we worship? We, we got the awkwardness behind us. Now can we be real? Does it make sense to you? Okay, I have got a few moments. I hope this is helpful. So back to the text. The Bible gives us an incredibly beautiful picture of the five gifts the English translates poorly to how the church can be helped. Now I'm going to give you a more helpful, I think, modern equivalent. Think for a moment, if you will. Bert and Sherry are standing on a lot I don't know, somewhere over here, I don't know Ventura well. They've bought a lot, and they want to build a house. And so what is the first thing they do, besides all the friends coming and celebrating and having a prayer march around it or something? Well, you, you get an architect there, and you say, well, what do you think? Now, if I was an architect, which I'm not, I'm more of a visual church architect than a draw lines in the sand kind of architect, but I would say, what's your dream? What do you want to see? Well, it's got a great view, so let's put a, let's put a big window in here. Okay, that's good. That's good. We, we don't want to put a fireplace where the view should be. All right? What else do you want? Well, we want a ton of people in the house. Okay, so the biggest room in the house is not the bedroom where we spend least time. It's the dining room and the lounge where we have tons of people. Are you with me? So I think in order for us to understand these gifts beautifully, think of those who help us build our dream home. Can you own a build? Probably. But for most of us, we are clueless. We have no idea how to own a build. We have no idea how, where to start. And so God gives us these incredible gifts, and it's nothing more than this. They're the tradesmen of heaven to help build healthy churches. Whenever we talk of apostles or prophets or evangelists or pastor teachers, oftentimes it's almost like this mysterious, mystical set of gifts that kind of ooh, ooh, come into the room and they've got a halo around them and they dress funny and they've got a big attitude. And no, 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 no. They're tradesmen. They've, they've got dirty hands. Look under their fingernails. And if they've got grit under their fingernails, they're probably the right guy for the job. Are you with me? If, if I want to build a house and a guy arrives on site and he says, well, I'm a contractor and he's a suit and he's got manicured hands and he drives with a big fancy BMW, I'm thinking, oh, dude, 
You know, I'm not so sure. But a guy who pulls up with a Ford F-150 and there's stuff in his car and he's got blueprints out on the hood and he wears a big hat and he's tanned. He, isn't, he hasn't got all the, the what do you call it, uh, moisturizers on. You know, and he doesn't have... I say, buddy, I think I'm probably going to take you. Because this other guy makes me really nervous. Fancy Merc suit, uh, shoes, manicured hands. I'm probably not going to go with him. So when you see these gifts... Don't think of them in a scary, mystical, distant way as if they're somehow subnormal. These are ordinary men and women who God raises up to be the tradesmen to help the church be beautiful, be healthy, be robust, and be strong. Does that make sense to you? So, very quickly, what are, those, what are they there for? Well, I think three primary reasons. The one is to bring a unity or wholeness. That's their, their, their grace speciality. They bring unity, oneness, wholeness, a sense of togetherness. It's a beautiful thing. When you walk into a family where there's wholeness, isn't there? You walk in here, wow, this feels different. I was asked to speak at a house church leaders gathering in Costa Mesa. The most exquisite house I have ever seen in my life. I'm sure it's worth 50 million. I mean, there were dungeons underneath. The guy in a part-time way made surfboards out of wood. So he had this whole room set at a particular temperature just for his 20 surfboards that he made. He had a whole wine air room with, I mean, just exquisite, but they're getting divorced. So you feel it. This isn't whole, healthy. This is broken, pain. Imported stuff from Italy to build the house, and they're getting divorced. Not worth it. So the first thing that we tradesmen do to build healthy churches, according to the text, is unity, wholeness, grace. Secondly, it's to equip. That's a fancy Bible word. We don't really talk of equipping anymore. So what's the modern word? It's coaching. It's so that we come in and we help coach the church to disciple better, to make sure every person plays. You know what's interesting? We think churches of thousands are good. Now, I'm not saying they're bad or good, but I am saying this. Sociologists say the optimum community is 187 people, not Christians. The optimum community is where everyone is known, like cheers for those of you a little bit older like I am. Everyone is known. Everyone has a contribution. Everyone has a bar seat. Everyone has a particular order. Everyone has a role to play. It's 187 people. Anything beyond that becomes a performance. So the second thing that we do is to empower everyone. Everyone is important to the community. And then thirdly, it's the maturity piece, which we raise our kids up spiritually and all of you to do three things very simply. Into the body of Christ, which is to belong. It's fancy language, to belong to Jesus' bride. In the knowledge of the Son of God, which is to believe, and we grow in that. Can, can I also say this? And I hope you don't mind. I, I don't mean to demean any of you, but remember, doubt is the key to faith. Doubt is not an enemy. Doubt is a friend that forces me to ask the hard questions. If you've never doubted, you've got borrowed faith. Don't borrow someone else's faith. I don't want my kids to have dad's faith. I want them to have theirs. I've sat with each one of them at different times where they've doubted. Dad, I don't know if I believe that. 
I don't know if I know, if I agree with what the Bible says about homosexuals. I don't know if I believe what the Bible says about eternity and hell and damnation. I say, thank you. Now we can have honest, good conversations. Because doubt is the gateway to faith. Doubt isn't to be feared. So, I don't know if I should talk to Bert about my doubts. No, no, no. This is a good thing. It becomes a bad thing if we let doubt linger. But doubt is a great traveling companion to faith. And so not only is it belonging to the body, believing in the knowledge of the Son of God, but it's also growing into Him. It's the will of God. We were asked last night, what are the adjustments? Have I had 10 minutes left, quarter after? Is that good? You're all still good? You're not exhausted or boring? Bored? Think of my poor wife. She has to listen to this every day, you know? <laughs> so I think, well, when will this guy end? Just think she has it every day. Poor woman, pray for her for the rest of your life. <laughs> what was I going to say now? I lost my thought, my train of thought. Belong, believe. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yes, 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 yes. You know, living your dream is American, not Bible. You know that, of course. Living your dream is an American thing. It's not a Bible thing. The, the, Meryl came through and she said to me one day, she said, babe, this is about for five years ago. Seven years ago, she said to me, I've got to speak at a women's event on living your dream. And then she went on to say, but you know, I haven't lived mine. So now I'm sitting there thinking, is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> is what she just said to me, is that going to encourage me or sadden me? And I made, I made light of it because that's how I deal with pain. I laugh. And uh, they, then, then we sat down and we said, no, actually... She was going to marry someone like her dad, tall, dark, and handsome. She marries a loud, aggressive, short, big-assed guy. I mean, it's like everything is the opposite. She was, going to live, she was going to live around her sister. What does she do? I take her to the other side of the world. Our kids were going to grow up with their cousins. Our kids never see their cousins. I mean, everything is the opposite, but it's better. See, all of us face strategic moments in the, in the sand where we draw a line and say, God, I will not obey you anymore. I've got my favorite house. Subconsciously, I will not move. I found my city because I want to live near my family. I will not move. I've got my perfect job. I will not move. You with me? I don't even know if God's angry with us. I just think we miss out. Can I tell you a beautiful story? I said I'll tell a few stories. So we got here 22 years ago. My daughters were 8 and 10. So by the time they were 14 and 16, some agent picked them up and called me and he said, listen, your eldest daughter is gorgeous, which she is, and that's completely biased. She'll be a great fashion model. And your second daughter, the TV camera loves her. Can I be their agent? So I said, I'll get back to you. So Meryl and I talk. We said, no, we haven't come to America for our kids to be popular or to be known or to be successful. We've come to America to serve Jesus. So I say, no, but this was my quiet prayer. Jesus, if I'm wrong, don't punish my kids. If you have something else for them, please don't punish them. Many years later, Meryl writes a final dissertation for her master's uh, thing on marriage and family therapy. I say, come on, let's go out and eat um, South Coast Plaza's got a really cool kind of dim sum restaurant, fabulous food. So we go in, we sit down, I'm very tender, I'm so proud of my wife. At, after 32 years of study, at 52 she goes back to college. Sorry, love? I'm not studying, thank you. So at 52 she goes back to college. 
I mean, we did everything by pen and paper. She's doing everything by computer. She's my hero. So I'm sitting there already tender. Dana sends me a picture. My middle daughter, she's on the red carpet. She's had an Emmy nomination for best original song for a TV drama. Well, that, I lose it. I mean, I am weeping. All right. I've got my wife who's a graduate, who's cleverer than me. I've got a daughter who's on the red carpet, who's a better singer than me. I'm devastated. No, I'm joking. I am as proud as can be, you see. So this cute little Asian waitress comes and she looks, looks at me, looks at Meryl. She thinks, this, they really got a bad marriage. And she's like, I don't know what to say. I said, no, I'm really happy. I'm really happy. I said, my wife's just finished her master's. My daughter's on the red carpet. I show her the picture. She freaks out. She said, I've never met anyone who knows someone famous. So I'm trying to process that I've never met anyone who knows someone's fame. So I said, well, do you want me to sign the handkerchief? I mean, the, the thing? I mean, I'll, I'll do something if that'll make you feel good. But, but you see how good God is. When you say yes to His kingdom, you never lose. You get better. I mean, I've got 40 years of walking with Jesus now. I think I can say that I'm not a 25-year-old passionate guy who has no story. Our life is way beyond anything, honestly than we ever imagined. Our 30th wedding anniversary was in Paris. I had a Kronenberg, which is a local French beer. Meryl had a glass of wine, not because she likes wine, but it seemed the right thing to do. And there a local Parisian took their violin and were playing, and local people were just dancing on the street. The sun was setting over Notre Dame Cathedral. We sat there weeping, saying, Jesus, how many times we said no to us, and we said yes to you. We never thought it would look like this. See, what the tradesmen do, we tradesmen, is that we help you believe, belong, and then to live a surrendered life to Him who is the head, who is Jesus. That's what we do. If, if, if you are wrestling with a decision today, should I, shouldn't I, I want you to leave challenged and stirred by our story for no other reason than saying yes to Jesus and no to something else is always better. Always better. Our four grandkids in Australia, I miss my eldest daughter every day. Every day, Nasi Alara, my heart is broken. Every day. Every day, I want the phone to ring. Hey, Dad, Nasi, are we having pizzas? Do you want to come around? It's not going to happen. But she's at the University of Notre Dame studying nursing, which she would have never have done while she's still in L.A. To say yes to Jesus and no to something else is always better. Are you with me? All right, very quickly, what are those five areas? And, and it's simple. The apostle, please don't think fancy. There are four levels of apostle. Jesus, one. The twelve, two. Those who were in the Bible called apostles, three. And then others, very small a, who are what? Who are master builders. I use the analogy of standing there saying, let's dream. What could Anthem Ventura look like? Let's build a beautiful house barbecues and a wine bar and maybe a little corner for scotch if that's your, 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 your jab and, and, and you know the cigars if you like that and that's the little love seat where, where the two of you when the kids are down are swinging. Let's build that. An apostolic ministry is really helping you build the dream that God's put inside of you. It can't look like 20 years ago. We're not in the 90s anymore. We did church in the 90s. We're not there anymore. It's a different time. The culture's different. We've got Trump as president. In the 90s, no one would have ever thought a reality TV person would become president. And I'm not putting good or bad on that. That's your decision to make. All right, so that's that. The prophets, that's a very difficult gift because it never sleeps. 
If you are prophetic, you know it never slips. When we go out to eat at a restaurant, I always put Meryl's back to the room. Because her gift does this all the time. Say, babe, here we are. I'm the man. I'm the guy. Check me out. She says, Chris, that couple, they're fighting. Things are not good there. I feel like he's having an affair. Oh, I don't know why that person's... I said, babe, we're on date night here. Can we just, can we move the room around here a little bit? Because prophets feel, sense, and discern the Father's heart for others. They feel it. They feel what God, their hearts break. At night they dream dreams. At day, they, during the day they see visions. They sense, they feel, they discern. And, and can I say this? If you're prophetic, it's a very difficult gift to carry because the presence of God is more important to you than anything else. And that's why we kick prophets out of churches. Because we want people happy, but prophets want God's presence evident. And if unrighteousness is in the camp, drugs, drinking, promiscuity, lying, cheating, fraud, the prophets get very agitated. So what we do with them is let's kick them out. We don't want to deal with the issues. Let's get rid of them because they really say unkind things. So if prophets, I mean, if apostles are the contractor, the prophets are the plumbers. They let the river of God, the life of God, flow through the house. Number three, evangelists. Very quickly. I love them. They are fire. All that they think about are those who are a long way away from God. There's a, there's a, a, a young-ish guy from Liverpool that I work with in, in uh, Orange County. He used to be a professional skater. And Brian Sumner has got this heavy Liverpudlian accent. And uh, he just has lost, 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 lost. That's what he thinks. I mean, he's done what everyone says you just don't do in Huntington Beach. He takes a group of people down on a Thursday night, I think it is, and they worship at the Huntington Pier. Who does that? That is so uncool. That is so bad. No, it isn't. Because he wants the lost to encounter Jesus, and he doesn't care if you blush or are awkward en route. All right? So the apostles, the contractor, the prophets, the plumber, the evangelists, the sparky, the electrician. The pastor is the roofer. He provides oversight. Discipleship is their big language and conversation. And I need to rush to end. I've taken way too long. The teacher, Bert, guards the doors. Everything's about Scripture. We went around the room last night with a bunch of your leadership types. And I said, what makes you tick? And it was wonderful to listen. And of course, to him, within three words, it was the Bible. I think it was, and the Bible. It was like, yeah, but I know who you are. You're the teacher. That's what makes him alive. It's the beauty, the wonder, the value, the priority, the essence, the necessity for the Bible. So, all of which to say, I'm landing, and I'm sure you're relieved. Please, please adjust. Christianity is not a one-man sport. I ran ultramarathons and marathons. I don't do it anymore, as you can see. But that's not a picture of Christianity. It's what we do together. Can I ask you with vulnerability and honesty and say, God, I'm so sorry I've made my spiritual journey about me. It isn't. It's about us. Secondly, I hope today that there really is a sweet surrender. That saying yes to Jesus is better than anything else. Really. I look, drive past uh, soccer fields on a Sunday morning. And uh, I mean, my kids played all sorts of sports. And I just think, wow, 
my kids' soccer is more important than worshiping Jesus together. How tragic. A kid will not become a professional. Less than a fraction of a 1% will ever make it to that level. And I forfeit meals, family meals. I forfeit Sunday worship. I forfeit it. We'll grab a McDonald's. We'll grab an In-N-Out. We'll grab and we won't ever eat together because it's soccer and volleyball. And, and I think, no, 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 no. Time out. No. Yes to Jesus is more important and no to other things. And then lastly, I hope in a room like this that there are tradesmen here who will give your life away to the church. Apostles, contractors, prophets who are plumbers, evangelists who are sparkies, electricians, pastors who are roofers who protect the community at all costs, and then the teachers who put on the doors and the windows to make sure we have access to who comes in and to who goes out. I've loved being with you. I hope it's been helpful.